0: It's time to start living in your healthiest skin. Welcome to Living Skin. I'm Beth Bialco with Global Education, and today's podcast is focused on skin cancer. And we're talking about prevention and detection and some key tips to keep you sun safe. So May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month with over 5 million cases diagnosed in the United States each year. Skin cancer is the most common cancer in the United States. So we are very fortunate to be joined today for our dermatology spotlight, calling in from New York, Dr. Mary Stevenson. Well, Dr. Stevenson, we are so happy you're able to take a moment to be with us today. I just want to give our listeners just a brief background a little bit about you. So Dr. Stevenson is a dermatologic surgeon who specializes in Mohs surgery, a treatment for skin cancer. As well as laser and cosmetic procedures. Now she is currently at the Ronald O. Perlman Department of Dermatology, NYU Langone Medical Center, and the Stuart J. War Young Investigator. So her clinical research focuses on high skin or high risk skin cancers, including squamous cell carcinoma. And she was also awarded a Career Development Award in Dermatologic Surgery for work on the identification of novel risk factors and biomarkers for poor outcomes in squamous cell carcinoma. Now, Dr. Stevenson, before we begin discussing our very important topic today on skin cancer, could you tell us a little bit more about your current work and your research?
1: So one of the things I'm really interested in figuring out is who that walks through your door what patient and what tumor is at high risk for a bad outcome? Who is the person that's gonna go on to have a local recurrence, their tumor coming back or their tumor spreading somewhere? So I'm interested in staging guidelines and trying to figure out what risk factors we can put together to help take out those patients and then using those staging guidelines to better prognosticate, to tell patients how they will do and also to help define how we might treat patients. So in particular, I'm interested in planus cell carcinoma, which actually just had a new staging system released this year from the American Joint Committee on Cancer, and trying to look at how we can continue to improve and hone our research to figure out what clinical features of a tumor or a patient and what histologic features, meaning looking under the microscope, might key us into that a disease might behave more aggressively in a certain patient. And that comes from two ways. Some tumors can be more aggressive, just said the nature of the tumor, and we also know that in certain subsets of patients, for instance, patients with a history of immunosuppression, they might have different outcomes from their tumors. So I'm interested in looking at those components.
0: Okay, fantastic. I think that is just your research and your work is, is so impactful, and is, you know, it's critically important as well. So thank you for sharing that with us. So skin cancer is on the rise. And so is one of the most deadliest forms, which is melanoma. And according to the Skin Cancer Foundation, about 90% of non-melanoma skin cancers and 85% of melanoma cases are associated with exposure to ultraviolet radiation from the sun. So today, um, you know, working with, actually speaking with Dr. Stevenson, we're, we're really trying to raise awareness through education of the dangers of unprotected UV exposure And really encouraging sun-safe habits to, you know, hopefully change behaviors. So I want to start off with our first question. So Dr. Stevenson, beginning with understanding the types of skin cancers. I think that's a really important place for us to start. A lot of our listeners may not necessarily know um, the specific types of skin cancer. So the most common, um, maybe who develops them and what they look like. That's a
1: great question. So we know that one in five Americans will actually develop a skin cancer by the age of 70. It's very, very common to develop a skin cancer. And when we talk about skin cancer, we often talk about the top three, basal cell, squamous cell carcinoma, and melanoma. And we know when we talk about basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma, these we consider non-melanoma skin cancers, that there were more than 5 million cases diagnosed in the last year and the incidence was on the rise. We also know for melanoma that, as you mentioned, the incidence is on the rise, with increasing rates in all populations. So basal cell is probably the most common skin cancer. There were something like 4.3 million cases diagnosed last year. And this is followed second by squamous cell carcinoma, with roughly 750,000 to 1 million cases diagnosed. Basal cell rarely goes other places or does other bad things except in people with certain genetic conditions, but it does like to locally invade and grow in the tissue that it is in. And we know that squamous cell carcinoma, while generally has a great prognosis, does cause death annually, something like three to 9,000 deaths in this country each year. And basal cell and squamous cell are actually so common that it's hard to know exactly how many people have had them and how much morbidity is associated with them because they're so frequent that they're usually not included in a lot of our cancer registries. Melanoma, we know, is also on the rise in terms of incidence and roughly 9,000 deaths a year are caused by this cancer. The good news is if it's caught early, it has a very good prognosis, and people do really well with it. But this is why we're so urgently asking people, come get screened, especially in Skin Cancer Awareness Month, because we know that one person dies every hour from melanoma, and we really want to make sure that aggressive skin cancers are caught, caught early, and treated so that people do well.
0: Okay, those statistics, I think are are really just so powerful, especially you know when we're talking about how many cases that we're seeing a year just within the United States. And I think also to you, you made a key point about early detection and getting you know getting the the skin checked. So that kind of leads me to my next question, which would be, what are some of the ways, the best ways that you would recommend for prevention and detection? I mean, obviously, Right. Make an appointment with your dermatologist for a total, you know, body skin examination. But are there other pieces of advice like any, you know, home advice or things that you should look out for when you're even just checking your own skin?
1: So I completely agree in making an appointment with a board certified dermatologist and planning to get checked head to toe. And from there, that person will be able to help guide you in terms of how often you should be screened. So for the majority of people, they should be screened once. And then the question is, should they be screened annually Or do they have a history of skin cancer, a strong family history that might lead them to need to be screened more frequently? For my own patients, what I usually recommend is getting in front of a mirror once a month and looking yourself head to toe, because you're gonna know your skin better than anyone, and in conjunction with the dermatologist who's also checking you, you'll be able to say, I've had that forever, or no, that's a completely new lesion. And those might guide us differently in terms of how suspicious we are of something. In addition, um, if you check yourself too often, you'll be convinced everything's changing. So usually about once a month, whether you pick the first Sunday of the month or just kind of get into the habit of getting in front of a mirror, using a mirror to check your back and other places you might not be able to see, and then getting screened by a dermatologist.
0: So really, it's not only the kind of collaboration right with your dermatologist but I, I thought that was interesting the point you said about just you know checking areas like your back you know areas that you may not see are there any other areas of your body that maybe um, skin cancer could develop that are, are not as common as you know such as like your your face or your ears or your nose as we always hear stories about that or a place on your chest but there are other areas that we should be aware of too so-
1: when we talk about sun-exposed areas, these are probably the most common places we do see skin cancers, but that doesn't mean that we don't see skin cancers routinely, especially as a skin cancer surgeon in places where the sun doesn't shine necessarily. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. want to make sure that you're really getting a thorough exam and being checked head-to-toe. You know, as a dermatologist, we're responsible for your scalp, hair, looking in and around your mouth. What we call double-covered areas, so areas that your underwear might be covering. You want to make sure that if you have a lesion of concern, That you're not embarrassed to show someone tell someone or go get it checked out also for scalps that can be a hard area to check so if you have someone who routinely you know does your hair let them know if you ever see something please let me know and then you can go show a dermatologist but these are areas that you want someone to take care and looking through and can be areas where we have skin cancers
0: okay so if now if you've never had um, a, a skin screening or skin scanner, a total body skin examination. Now, I get mine done um, every two years, so I'm a, a loyalist when it comes to that. I love my dermatologist. Um, could you maybe walk through to someone maybe who hasn't scheduled their their skin scan with a dermatologist? What you know, what to expect? You mentioned head to toe, looking at different areas.
1: So when you go to meet you with a dermatologist, you should expect to remove your clothing, and we have to put on a gown. And then they're really going to just check you head to toe. And people are often embarrassed, but most people become doctors because they want to help people and take care of people. And this is what we do. So we check you head to toe. I literally go head to toe. So I start at the scalp, I go down the front side, and then I have people flip over and I look at their entire back. Um, And you want to make sure someone's also looking. You don't want to go with your toenail polish on or your fingernail polish, you really want them to be able to see all of your skin, including your nails, your scalp, and anything you're worried about. Often, the first thing they'll say to you before they examine you is, is there anything worrying you, anything growing, changing, anything you've noticed that you in particular want me to look at? And then they'll look at those areas and also look you very thoroughly, head to toe, and check all of your skin. I think often people ask me, what should I be looking for when I examine myself at home? And that's can be very complicated because we all have lots of different lesions that could be changing or growing that to the untrained eye might be concerning, but what your dermatologist might look at, it might be either concerning or, no, that's no key lesion, and how do you know when you're at home checking yourself? Well, first off, I think we should often just clarify when we talk about skin cancers, when we talk about basal cell and squamous cell cancers, we're calling those non-melanoma skin cancers, so those are kind of in a separate group. They often can look pink or more papular, they can be crusted, eroded. This is the kind of lesion that if you're constantly shaving over an area and it keeps making a little wound and it's never healing, that would be something I would show to my dermatologist. Don't just assume, oh, I just keep hitting the same spot. Really, if something doesn't heal for a long time or is constantly bleeding or constantly nicking it, you notice it, you should show it to them. Mm -hmm. When we talk about melanoma, which is a different kind of skin cancer, so melanoma, we often talk about the ABCDEs in terms of what patients can look for on their own. So this includes asymmetry of the lesion. Does it, can it be clearly outlined with a pen or a marker? If you feel like it would have a jagged edge or one side's very different from the other, it's not symmetric, it's asymmetrical. B is for borders. So again, if you don't feel like it has a kind of smooth, regular edge, C is for the color, if it has a lot of color variation in it. So lots of, generally speaking, melanomas are pigmented lesions. So they're dark, they look like moles. So it does it have a lot of dark colors in it. D is for the diameter of the lesion. I usually say something's bigger than a pencil eraser, Skip. Then you should be getting it checked out. And E is for evolution. So this is where it's really important that you're checking yourself once a month. Something that's changing, that's an important risk factor for a lesion that needs to be looked at. So the A, B, C,
0: D, and E's of moles. So that I think is such a, a crucial tip, especially when... You know, when you said when you're at home checking out areas or you see a spot that looks different than it did the month before and definitely, you know, watching the science like you mentioned earlier, I thought, which was so powerful is that, you know, your body. Right. You know, when things look suspect or things are changing, I think even in the skincare industry, you know, as a skin therapist, I mean, we're very up and close looking at the skin and it is, you know, not our job to diagnose, but if you see something that may be on your client's skin that's changed, you know, asking them the questions and definitely recommending and referring them to a dermatologist to get, to get checked. One point that we were just talking about that I think is
1: really important. Yes. Um, it's also this question of does, every melanoma come from a mole, because you've now said that melanomas are these darker lesions, they look like moles, and how do I know my moles aren't melanomas? And I think that's a really important question, because there's a lot of misconception. So not every mole becomes a melanoma, and not every melanoma arises from a mole. Some melanomas do arise from moles, which is why people with a lot of moles or a lot of atypical moles. Atypical meaning they look funny clinically, have some of those factors we were talking about, or they've had them biopsied and they look funny under the microscope, have atypia to the actual architecture of the cells. So some people have a history of having many moles, and some people have a history of having a mole removed, and then the pathologist who read the slide of the actual biopsy report said, you know, this had some atypia. And when we talk about atypia, we're literally talking about the architecture of the cells. So when we talk about those lesions, they're often rated. So there are moles with very, with no atypia. Moles that when you look under a microscope, it looks like a mole you've had since childbirth. You know, some people would call those even beauty spots. The moles that, you know, you, me, the person on the subway next to you would say, "I'm not worried about that. It looks like a mole." Then there's moles with atypia. So atypia is usually graded. There's mild, there's moderate, and there's severe. When we get to the moderate and severe sides of atypia, we often think that they need to be re-excised or removed to make sure that any atypical cells have been completely removed so that that potential of that mole to go on to develop a melanoma is removed. Okay.
0: I'm, got, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that is such a key thing. Because you think about it, like you mentioned, that I could have a mole in my arm and think, Okay, well, I, I feel like I've had this since I've been, you know, little, but I don't know. And, you know, that's not every mole is going to necessarily be or turn into to melanoma. Now, when surgery does come into play, so let's say um, a patient is diagnosed with skin cancer, and it does need to be surgically removed. Um, could you walk us through what is um, called the Mohs micrographic surgery?
1: Absolutely. So I love what I do. I'm a Mohs micrographic surgeon. And this practice was developed by Frederick Mohs, Dr. Frederick Mohs, in the late 1930s. And the the idea of this is that the tumor is removed with a small margin of normal skin. And then the tissue is actually processed right away. So when you have a biopsy to show you have a skin cancer, the tissue is sent to a laboratory and it's actually often put in formalin and then embedded in wax, and the slides are then made, and that's what takes some time to get a biopsy result. You don't get your biopsy result the same afternoon that you had the biopsy. But Mohs surgery is considered to be the most effective technique for treating many basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas, the two most common types of skin cancer we've been discussing, and that's because it allows for complete analysis of the margin of the tumor. So what happens is the area is usually going to be numbed with a local anesthesia, usually we inject lidocaine, same as you had with your biopsy. Some people also have lidocaine with epinephrine. And then once it's numb, you're gonna remove the tumor with a small margin of normal skin, and then you actually go to a waiting room. So the tumor has been removed with a small margin of normal skin, a bandage is placed, and you go to a waiting room while the tissue is processed. The tissue is processed using frozen histology. So rather than being fixed and embedded, someone's actually freezing in and embedding it for the surgeon who's then looking under a microscope, and the way that the tissue is processed allows us to look all the way around and all the way underneath the tumor. Then we can either see that we got all the way around, all the way under the tumor, we analyzed the complete margin and we know we've removed everything, or we can literally see the tumor on our slides and we have a map of your tumor, so we know if we need to go wider in certain places, deeper in certain places, or both. And then we go back and forth, meaning we would remove more cancer. If we saw more cancer, you'd wait again in a waiting room with a bandage on until we got complete margin clearance. So once the margins are clear, meaning when I look all the way around, all the way underneath, there's no more tumor, then we plan your reconstruction, which usually involves moving around tissue and moving skin in order to repair things nicely.
0: Okay. So so really, this is it's like a process, like you said. It's like almost you're you're doing the surgery and then just making sure that the margins and everything are clear. I think a lot of people um, will probably appreciate you going into detail with that who are listening in because they think about you know having skin cancer removed, and sometimes it it strikes a a nerve of like of fear. Would you would you agree? Does that happen when you have patients who come in or going underneath the procedure of Mo's surgery? A little bit, being a little bit more nervous about that.
1: Certainly. I mean, I think anytime your own health, you're told you have a cancer or you have to have something removed or you're going to have surgical scars. These are all things that worry people and reasonably so. I think you want to really ask your doctor, you know, the questions that you might have and make sure you have a trusting relationship with your physician. You know, the great thing about most surgeries actually allows us to offer complete clearance and, you know, 100% of the margin is evaluated while removing as little as your normal skin as possible. So I always tell my patients that going back a second time for more cancer, actually, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because if I want to remove just your cancer and leave as much of your normal skin there as possible, sometimes I'm still going to find tumor after that first stage and that's okay. Okay, perfect.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Stevenson, for for walking us through that. We really appreciate it. Um, so, I want to switch gears just a little bit and and talk about the most critical product, right, for safe sun practices, and that's SPF. So, as a dermatologist, um, what are your key tips? Te- key uh, tips on on sunscreens, anything that you look for, um, what do you recommend to your patients as far as, like, how much to apply, um, how often, and, you know, personally, do you have any extra advice on uh, being in the
1: sun? I think this is probably the most common question I get asked after the diagnosis of a skin cancer in terms of how can I protect myself. So mm-hmm. big way you can protect yourself is to wear sunscreen and protect yourself from harmful UV damage. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is that any damage you had as a child does put you at risk for skin cancer, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't start protecting yourself now or wearing sunscreen. There's actually data out of Australia where they have a lot of skin cancer, perhaps the most in the world, suggesting that even if at the age of 50 you start applying sunscreen, you decrease your incidence of making skin cancers compared to those people that did not. Um, They have a good saying there, slip, slop, slap. It was a... I think it was a public service announcement, but it was basically slip on a shirt, slap on the sunscreen, and slap on a hat. And I think those are definitely good ideas to keep in mind. You really want to wear SPS. You want to wear sunscreen over 30, in my opinion, whether you buy 50, 100. There is some data to suggest wearing, you know, a higher number is better, but I think the biggest mistake people make is that they don't put on enough and they don't reapply. So if you're going to put on 100 and not reapply it, you're not doing yourself a favor. And SPF actually stands for sun protective factor, and it measures the fraction of sunburn producing UV rays that reach the skin. So for instance, SPF 30 means 1 30th of the burning UV radiation is reaching your skin. Other things that I think are really important is that any sunscreen sets being greater than SPF 30, we have to state that it's broad spectrum, That means it's covering you for both UVA and UVB because SPF historically was designed to measure UVB, but we now know that UVA also can be very damaging to the skin. Other things that I think are important is, you know, just being mindful. If you're very fair-skinned and have a history of skin cancer, you should not be out at the beach tanning at 12 noon. You still should live your life. You should still enjoy the time outdoors, but you really want to be protecting your skin. You want to be wearing sunscreen, not outside at key hours, under an umbrella. If you're going to be at the beach, I like ultraviolet protective clothing, so you can get, um, instead of SPF, you can get clothing that has a UPS, so ultraviolet protection factor, and that often indicates what fraction of the rays are going to penetrate the fabric, so I think it's great now when you go to the beach and you see, you know, the new trend is everyone's in a rash car that has protective qualities and most kids are now actually covered up I was the dorky kid in the t-shirt
0: mm-hmm. which we know has an
1: SPF about four, thank you mom um, <laughs> you know headed into the ocean but now actually I think you know you can go online to companies where you might be buying normal clothing when they're offering things like this and I think that's great you obviously want to avoid tanning the so tanning is considered and I mean indoor tanning beds this is UV radiation that's considered a known carcinogen causes cancer, so definitely avoid that. And I think you really want to reapply. So how much sunscreen should you be putting on? If you still have your tube of sunscreen from last summer and you're generally an outdoors kind of person, you have not been putting on enough. So you should really be thinking about about a shot glass for exposed areas of the body, so like your neck, your arms, your face. You want like a nickel-sized dollop for your face each morning. And then depending, you have to titrate the space and on how exposed you're gonna be, and then you wanna reapply it. So even if it says waterproof after the water, you should reapply. Um, you wanna apply before you go in the water, at least 30 minutes usually to give it time. And then also I get asked a lot about types of sunscreen. So I'll be asked, what is the difference between a chemical blocker and a physical blocker? And basically when we talk about chemical versus physical blockers, a lot of the baby sunscreens you'll see are physical blockers. So these are things like titanium and zinc oxide. And people in the past didn't like to wear them because these products were kind of thick. They gave you that pasty white feeling. But our technology has gotten a lot better mm-hmm. now. When you hear about this nanotechnology, we can make these particles much smaller. You can hear about clear zinc. I think physical blockers basically prevent the UV radiation from reaching your skin. It reflects it back. Whereas some of the other products that are chemical blockers are absorbing it and not letting it cause DNA damage.
0: So this these are all super valuable uh pieces of advice. I mean, I like number 1 of course. I t- totally agree with you. It's never too late, right? I mean, if this is something you did not grow up wearing or putting on sunscreen, um you know, it's never too late to start. It's it's just definitely should be something I think for me as a skin therapist, I prescribed to all of my clients is that if you have to have, you know, one product that has to be in your daily regimen is definitely an SPF. And as you mentioned, broad spectrum, that UVA, that UVB minimum of SPF 30 is really what um, is recommending. I like, of course, a SPF 50, but like you said, like reapply and how much you're putting on. It's just really watching that, that pea size amount is not going to be enough. And if you're not reapplying it you know, on uh, on a necessary basis, especially if you are active in the in the sun as well. As well, and and thank you for making you know the, the points about the clothing. I agree. the The way that the industry has changed, and you know, it's not just about wearing a hat, but now they have like shirts and shorts and things that definitely have more of the SPF factor um, as well too.
1: I think you raised a really good point about this pea sized amount because that's the other thing I often get asked. Well, my makeup has sunscreen in it that's plenty right yes and often when you look at those products it's not spf 30 or above so like you you like 50 i like anything 30 or above um it's often spf 15 and really unless you're applying makeup to the point where everyone can see your makeup which i don't think most people are you're not getting enough so what i recommend is using either a tinted or untinted sunscreen applying it to your entire face neck chest Um, often we forget the back of the neck the ears hands and then if your makeup has sunscreen in it, that's just an added benefit that you're going to get mm-hmm. on top of it. And often the things that are in makeup, those kinds of tinted tinted products, mm-hmm. are protecting you in different ways from different forms of light. So you're getting just extra from that. And I think that's always good, but that shouldn't be what you're relying on for the most part.
0: Right. Exactly. Because also, too, if you think about it, makeup, you know, you, you put it on and then you're touching your face. It wears off throughout the day. You're talking on your phone. So it's like get that that proper spf factor on that um first and then putting your makeup on on top of that
1: 100% agree with you with that so in, in my own regimen for instance i'm putting on uh, i i'm putting on right now an spf i forget if it's 54 or 56 but that goes on and it's untinted first thing i put on after i put on um, you know other products but like before i put on my makeup so i used my moisturizer use whatever then i'm putting on my sunscreen and then i put on mm-hmm tinted moisturizer on top of it that kind of acts as a little bit of a foundation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they have some
0: amazing, just really gorgeous formulas in in the industry today with, like you said, the tinted moisturizers. Um, They even have primers that have SPF um, in them as well. So I'm a huge fan of doubling up on on anything that you can when it comes to to sun protection. So I do have one uh, last question for you as I want to bust some of these urban myths together. Um, I've heard things in my, in, as long as I've been a, a skin therapist now, is that a lot of things about I burn before I tan, or you know I need a base tan before I go on vacation, or I have darker skin, so I don't necessarily feel like I need to wear SPF. So what are some of your op- opinions on, on some of these kind of what I call urban myths when it comes to, to sun protection?
1: So I think myth buster is that no tan is a good tan. Anytime you're getting burnt or tanned, you're having damage to your DNA mm-hmm. of your skin cells from ultraviolet radiation. Yes. So some people say they need a base tan because then then they're not going to tan as much. They've already developed pigment in their skin, which is your skin trying to protect itself. It's like building a moat around the castle saying, I have been damaged. What can I do? So that's why it's tanning. Other people who just burn definitely shouldn't be tanning or trying to tan. So anytime you're getting color or you're red or brown and blistering or anything like that, you're having damage from ultraviolet radiation. Mm-hmm. I always tell people to embrace the color you were born with. You know, We also have um, darker skin patients who say, well, I'm not at risk for skin cancer. And that, I think, is another myth that should be busted. Um, we see skin cancer in all races, all skin tones. And in fact, we know that melanoma in African-Americans, Asians, Filipinos, Indonesians, and Native Hawaiians actually can occur in less unexposed areas, like on the palms, soles, mucous membranes, in your nails. And so everyone is at risk and everyone should be protecting themselves. And this protection is not just for skin cancer. Also, cosmetically, if you wanna think about it that way, sometimes we do things for vanity when we should really be doing them for other reasons. But we know that UV damage causes wrinkling. It, Mm-hmm. encourages collagen breakdown and elastin. So I always try and keep it, give people the double motivation, like protect yourself from skin cancer. And also in terms of one of the easiest things you can do, and one of the cheapest things you can do cosmetically for yourself is wear sunscreen every day.
0: Yes, I agree. And i almost say, you know what, we've heard it straight from the doctor's mouth today is that you need to protect yourself every day, you know, and definitely for, from. The skin cancer, but as you mentioned, it contributes to aging and hyperpigmentation and discoloration I and mean, even when your skin has that model look, a lot of people find that you know, you can look older than you than you actually are so it 's just you know finding the sunscreen that works best for you and your skin condition and you know working in conjunction with your skin therapist and most importantly working with your dermatologist. Well, Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Living Skin Podcast. I mean, your input, your expertise, your advice is so valuable. And we just really appreciate you and your candid answers and being with us today. And we definitely want to wish you the best of luck with your current research. um, And we can't wait to hear from
1: you in the future. So thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'll leave you with this final thought that more people are diagnosed with skin cancer each year in the U.S. because of Skin Cancer Awareness Month than any other cancer combined. So please protect yourself and get checked. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: Thank you, Dr. Stevenson. Thank you for listening to Living Skin. You can find us on iTunes and the podcast section of Google Play Music. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. For more information, visit Dermalogica.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.